we like the notion that some people belong to us and some people don't. And, and working with gang members has always has always taught me that because of when we began, they were they were they're just the most reviled, demonized population. But all you had to do is spend two minutes with any gang member. Well, that is Father Greg Boyle of Homeboy Industries. My name is Eddie Koffeltz, and I am so glad that you are joining us this week for The New Activist. In the course of the interview, we kind of teed up Father Boyle to talk about Homeboy Industries and brag on it and talk about all of the great things, but he is a very humble man. And when asked, he really just told stories of people that are his friends, uh, parenthetically, he calls them homies, and that is kind of the vernacular of homeboy industries. So you will hear the men and women that they care about referred to as homies, which is kind of fun. But I wanted to share with you about what homeboy industries is, because it is like so many things that we have had on the new activist. Just one of those ideas that seems too uh, too too simple, not an execution, but in an idea to be true, and it it is just this wonderful concept that has ended up revolutionizing the lives of thousands and thousands of people. I'm going to read from the Homeboy Industries literature just so that I get it perfectly. Homeboy Industries provides hope, training, and support to formerly gang-involved and previously incarcerated men and women, allowing them to redirect their lives and become contributing members of our community. Each year, over 10,000 former gang members from across LA comes through through Homeboy Industries. And they have in Homeboy Industries just a myriad of programs. They have workforce development, case management, legal services, mental health, substance abuse, and uh, also tattoo removal. They say, and I believe it, that they are the largest tattoo removal shop in the world. And it's true because so many of these gang members come in with full sleeves of tattoos that are not only difficult for them in trying to procure a job, but also uh, these tattoos mean something and they mean something on the streets. And so to have these tattoos identifies you with a group that they are trying to escape from. So they remove tattoos. Homeboy Industries really is this one-stop shop. If you want to get out of a gang and you are in the LA area or any of the subsidiaries, you go to Homeboy Industries and it's working. It was started by our guest today, Father Greg Boyle. And he is a Jesuit priest, and his story is both remarkable and, like so many of the activists that we've had on the show, kind of unremarkable. He went to school, got his theology degree, started working in a church, and as he says in the interview, he was burying a growing number of young people, and for him that was not okay. So, we will be hearing from him today. As an additional note before we get started, the person you will hear interviewing Father Boyle is Eileen Campbell. Eileen is one of my favorite people at IJM, and she's just a really good, smart, kind person with an awesome NPR radio voice. You're going to love it. But she launched IJM's Grassroots Advocacy Program in 2008, and she oversees IJM's U.S. advocacy campaigns and organizers, and she advises all of the IJM field offices on advocacy program design. So she really is in, in the business of getting to the heart of issues and organizing all of us to stand up and do something. So she is a great person, the right person to have this conversation. Here is Eileen Campbell chatting with Father Greg Boyle. 
Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today, Father Boyle. I wonder if you could first just start by telling us about Homeboy Industries. Well, we uh, will celebrate 30 years uh, next year. And uh, so we started in 1988 when I was pastor of Poor's Parish in the city, Dolores Mission, and and uh, was just trying to respond to uh, the fact that we had eight gangs at war with each other. It was the place of the highest concentration of gang activity in all of Los Angeles, according to the LAPD. So I started to bury kids in 1988 and then continued to do so. So we did a lot of things. We started a school and then a jobs program and then a social enterprise uh, program. And now a, we're the largest gang intervention rehab reentry program on the planet. So we serve the whole county now. So we were born in uh, a community with the largest uh, public housing projects in west of the Mississippi. Part, a big part of what Homeboy does is tattoo removal, right? And what, why is that such an important part of, uh, of the ministry? Um, well, you know, those things evolved, you know, when gang members came, especially with alarming tattoos that were clearly impediments to, uh, you know, their future employment. And, and, uh, and they were impediments to their trying to step away from active gang involvement, you know, because they were provocative tattoos. Mm -hmm. So, so they came to me. And so then we started a tattoo removal just be, you know, by virtue of having listened to them. Mm -hmm. And so now I suspect no place on the planet removes more gang related tattoos for sure. So we're pretty much nine to five Monday through Friday in our designated clinic. Wow. And you, you wrote a book in 2010 called uh, Tattoos on the Heart, The Power of Boundless Compassion, um, which I've so enjoyed reading. Um, and in that book, you share a lot of stories which read kind of like parables about the homies that you work with and, and that you've really grown to love. Um, can you share the story behind that phrase, Tattoos on the Heart? Um, it, it's kind of a longish story. I can't remember how much I said in the book about it, but it was just a, a, a guy who was, uh, he had gotten in a fight, so he lost his his uh, two front teeth. And so he was something of a, uh, as the homies would say, a player. <laughs> so he was kind of a ladies' man. And so he kept wanting to get his teeth. So I, I had a dentist who was willing to help him. I said, make an appointment. And he kept he wouldn't do it. He would call me, say, can you please call the dentist? And I was getting annoyed with him. You know, I remember I was in Chicago just before cell phones and I called on a, a pay phone. Uh, I'll never forget this. And he was again asking me to make this appointment. This is more information than you need. But anyway, <laughs> in mid conversation, I, I realized why am I, you know, why do I have to be right about this? And I was kind of giving him a hard time. And all of a sudden, I stopped. I said, I'm, I, let me apologize. You're the best. You're one of my heroes. You're taking care of business. You've stepped away from all this stuff. I'm so proud of you. And uh, so there was silence. I thought he had hung up. And then he said, uh, wow, I'm going to tattoo that on my heart. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, write, so you write a lot, and you talk a lot about this idea of um, kinship. And um, just last month, you um, addressed the graduating class of Notre Dame, and uh, you talked a lot about uh, going to the margins and uh, paying attention to those who 
who are living on the margins. And uh, you, you told that class that the, you know, the measure of our compassion is, is not in our service to those at the margins, but in our kinship with them. But I'm, I'm so curious to hear you talk more about what is, you know, what is service or ministry or activism look like when it's, when it's really born out of that spirit of kinship? Well, I, I think there's a trap, you know, service is where you begin. And so there's no need to disparage service, except to say you don't want to end at service because there's always a distance in service, service provider, service recipient. And so you don't want that. You don't want there to ever be a distance. And then I, I question, you know, some kind of phrases that are part of our way we talk. You know, when somebody says, well, I just want to make a difference. And in my head, I always say, yeah, I, I hope you get over that, <laughs> you know, because you, you go to the margins not to make a difference because then it's all about you. You go to the margins so that the folks at the margins will make you different. And that may feel selfish, and it is, and that may feel passive, and yet it is the, it's the missing ingredient. It's, that's how things change. That's how margins get erased. Not by me going to the margins with my big old eraser. But you go there humbly to listen and to receive people and to allow yourself to be reached by the poor and the widow and the orphan and the stranger. And then what happens when you do that, it is a profound act that, in, that, that leads to everybody inhabiting their own nobility as people. Hmm. So I don't go to the rescues to, I don't go to the margins to rescue anybody. I don't go to the margins to fix anybody or save anybody. And that's kind of a key. So uh, I think we're, but we've embraced, it's a little unsophisticated and, and, and understandable. You know, I want to give back. I want to um, help. I want to make a difference. All those things are natural, but they're all about you. They're all about what you are going to contribute in this situation. Hmm. And, you know, the hope is that it can be selfless and it can be humble. And, and that's what you want. Hmm. Related to that, you know, you, uh, you often reference what uh, Dorothy Day called our common call to delight in one another. And how does that, how does that call to delight infuse your ministry? Well, you know, people always ask me, you know, how do you do it? Or how do you maintain this or that or the other thing? You know, and, and I, I think it all comes down to delight, to the extent that you can, you know, delight in people, you know, the person right in front of you, which is kind of what you're called to do. Then you'll never burn out. You'll never find yourself depleted. You know, and so being anchored in the present moment, delighting in the person right in front of you, all these things are so essential, you know, because otherwise, you know, it, it, you, will, you will slip into this mode of fixing, rescuing, and saving, which is, uh, is, is always not good. Hmm. How has your relationship with the homies that you work with, how, how have they shaped you know, the way that you understand God and, and what it means to stay faithful to God? 
you know, they're always sort of shaping that notion, you know, so every day we're supposed to inch ourselves closer to the God who's always greater, the God who loves us without measure and without regret. And so we're always getting stuck. Every day we get stuck in an atrophied sense of who God is. So the homies, because they're the most reviled and demonized, you know, it it sort of stands to reason even that they're going to be the ones who will point you in the right direction and reveal kind of the ever-changing face of God. Now, God doesn't change, but but our notion of God grows every moment. In the same way, it's my notion when I was in the fifth grade is not the same I have today. (laughs) And I'm hoping after this conversation, it'll not be the same again, you know, because so, you're always wanting to, to grow and expand because our God is so spacious and expansive. So it stands to reason. So the homies, because they always lead me to awe rather than judgment, you know, the movement away from judgment uh, is always the movement closer to the kind of God we have. And so you want to endlessly choose to be in the world who God is, compassionate, loving kindness, mm-hmm. who is always tender tender with us. And uh, and it's always only about allowing that tenderness to reach us. And to the extent you folks on the margins bring you to that, I think that's God's design. That's the way it's supposed to be. Well, I want to interrupt, and I hate to co-opt Father Boyle's great point, but when I think about people on the margins, I think about the work that I get to be a part of with IJM, as well as the work of Homeboy Industries and so many of the activists on this show. But wanted you to know, if you don't already, that IJM actually presents this show. This show is brought to you by IJM, and it is really important to all of us at IJM that we have these conversations, but it is also important that you use your voice for those who who may be on the margins, for those who we may not see and who we may not know. To that end, would you visit New Activist is IJM, newactivist.is slash IJM, and fill out the form that you see there. Filling out this form will, in one small but deeply meaningful way, leverage your voice for the sake of other people. That's what we're all doing here, isn't it? Newactivist.is forward slash IJM. And let me know on social media if you signed it. I would love to virtually high five you. Back to the conversation between Eileen and Father Greg Boyle. It seems to me as I get older that so much of uh, what uh, sort of spiritual growth means is like learning to grow in resilience. And uh, I... I wonder if you could even just share uh, if there's any stories that come to mind to you, for you of, of homies that have just really uh, like illuminated that uh, you know spiritual strength for you. You know, it just seems like that they 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 play that out all the time uh, in in your interactions with them. That that strength of resilience, which is deeply spiritual. Yeah, I mean, I I think part of what what happens all the time is. Homeboy is like the discovery channel. Homies are always discovering things that happened to them or things that they did, you know, in, in, in a in a place that is a sanctuary, a place that holds them. 
and so you're you're always being let in to what they've had to endure. I had a homie say to me the other day, I would not have wished my childhood on my worst enemy. And then as I come to know what that childhood was, I say to myself, I would not have survived a day of this guy's childhood. So it leads you to this whole other expansive place where these are God's special ones, you know, because they've carried and suffered so much. And so, you know, it's not favoritism, exactly. It's the preferential option for the poor. It's These are trustworthy guides. If you stay close to them, they're going to reveal the heart of God to you. So then what happens is, uh, you know, I'm noticing this lately in myself, you know, so you get um, the, the guy who's... Uh, you know, screaming at the Muslim women in Portland, and then the guys intervene, and he stabs the two people. And, you know, right away we go to racist, uh, hate crime, that kind of thing. But then you start to know um, that, you know, violence is always a language. And then you start to know in your heart and in your gut that, that that place that everybody goes to, this is a hate crime. We revile this man. Um, he's not one of us. That that is never a place that God goes to. God does not share your point of view on this guy. He just doesn't. And he doesn't share everybody's point of view on Dylan Roof, who killed all the people in Mother Emanuel Church. And he doesn't share the world's point of view on the suicide bomber in Manchester. And that's a kind of a huge thing because God knows that, that anybody who does such a thing is a mentally ill, carrying more trauma than anybody can bear to carry. It's utterly desperate and despondent. So, I mean, again, God's resp- God knows that the answer to every question is compassion. Mm-hmm. Now, it's rarely our answer to anything because we want to strike the high moral distance between us and them. We want to be able to say, um, he doesn't belong to us. He's a demon and be done with it. Mm-hmm. So it, it sends us down a kind of a rabbit hole. Not, not, that, not that racism isn't what we ever should talk about. But nobody has ever met a racist who was mentally healthy. Nobody, ever. (laughs) It's a sign that somebody is not mentally healthy. It's reflective of of the fact that you are unwell. And, And how are you supposed to feel about somebody who has to carry illness? Well, you're supposed to feel... I don't know. Compassion. That's a tough one. We're, we're not there yet. Um, but we're called to be there because that's exactly how God sees things. You know, but, and it shouldn't be that hard for us, but it is because we like the notion that some people belong to us and some people don't. And, and working with gang members has always, has always taught me that because of when we began, they were, they were 
they're just the most reviled, demonized population. But all you had to do is spend two minutes with any gang member. And then you'd know, oh, this is a human being who's despondent, who's damaged and traumatized, who is perhaps mentally ill. You know, all you need is two minutes to be in the vicinity. And then you know that. But, you know, I've never met a bad hombre. I've never met a, I've never met an evil person in my life. And you would think that maybe I had after working for 30 years with gang members. You would think. But I've never, I've never met one. I've met damaged people. I've met traumatized people. And I've met mentally ill people. But I haven't met an evil one yet. <laughs> it's interesting how much it sounds like um, the call to compassion is just so much about having a, a good imagination, right? like ima- being able to imagine uh, what someone else's life is like. Mm-hmm. And imagine what God's take might be on this, mm. you know? Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, Jesus looked at the guy who was having seizures and he said, the guy is possessed by a demon. And we know in 2017 that, in fact, no, he has epilepsy. And, and here are the meds you would take to control those seizures. But, but Jesus didn't know that. He didn't know from epilepsy. In the same token, this is what we do today. We look at Dylan Roof and we say racist, hate crime, evil, demon. When in fact, you know, the guy, I mean, I, you don't have to take Psych 101 for credit to know that this is a deeply, profoundly mentally ill human being. Now what do we do? Well, we can't allow for that because then we can't hate him. And that's an untenable possession position for us, because we, we have to be able to hate him. We have to be able to say, he is not one of us. So how can we say that? Hate crime, racist, evil. But I defy anybody to imagine that God agrees with you on that. <laughs> anybody, I defy anybody. <laughs> and that's the, that's the dilemma. There is, there is a God we actually have who understands what Dylan Roof has to carry in terms of mental illness. And then there's the God we settle for, who is the lesser God, the partial God, the God we think yeah. is more realistic. We're going to go with that God, the God who thinks he's evil and let's execute him. And, and that's, I don't think that's a small point. Everything depends. Are, are, are you animated by the God we actually have or the partial God we've settled for? I think uh, a lot of people right now who are committed to uh, social justice issues are just feeling kind of overwhelmed today. I don't know if you feel that too, but you know, there's just this sense of like we can't be hysterical all the time, right? So you know, what do you say to people uh, – and what do you say to the church right now, you know, when, when they ask you for your advice on, like, what they should be paying attention to right now? Well, you know, people are, get very nervous about, you know, sort of 
somewhere in your question is, you know, perhaps maybe the divisive nature of our political discourse. Yes. But for me, it's not about politics and it's not about part parties. It's about taking seriously what Jesus took seriously. And so uh, people, you know, I think it's really quite the invitation and challenge of the gospel to, in fact, uh, step up, you know, and, uh, and, and, and that's what resistance is about. It's about if you take what Jesus takes seriously, then you have to resist. And I, I don't know how anybody else can, you know, you, you cannot reconcile, you know, the desire to exclude and, and the acceptance of violence and conditions, constant conditions on our love and rejection of wholesale rejection of people. I, you can't reconcile that with the gospel. No matter how hard you try, it can't be done. And I think that's important. That's, that's not somehow venturing into an area we ought not to visit. Well, I do not want to put a final thought on this because this interview was a real think piece, wasn't it? We started with Homeboy Industries, why they do what they do, but then we end our time thinking about the other and how maybe our own perceptions of who God does and doesn't love may be challenged. That's what I'm thinking about, and I'm curious to hear what you are thinking about as you process this interview and process what Father Boyle said. You can find out everything about Homeboy Industries, Father Greg, how they do what they do, how you can give money and support them, and learn more about their model. All of it's on their website, homeboyindustries.org, and they also have great links to their social media there as well. On a similar note, we are on social media. Of course, New Activist is our, the handles both on Facebook and Twitter. Enjoy chatting with you throughout the week. The music for our show was composed by The Brilliance. You can check them out, see where they are on tour at thebrilliancemusic.com. And as a final reminder, before we head out, if you would go to newactivistis slash IJM and sign the letter, that would be really tremendously important and amazing. So many of you have. Thank you. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of Homeboy Industries, Father Greg Boyle, my colleagues at International Justice Mission, as well as the relevant podcast network, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends. When I look into the face of my enemy, I see my brother, I see my brother. Thank you for listening to the New Activist Podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. And for more relevant podcast network shows, check out the podcast section at relevantmagazine.com.